Uh, I'd like for us to direct our attention to Romans chapter 5, if you would turn there. Romans chapter 5, and I know that Terry has been teaching through Romans, but we were talking about this, you know, it was, uh, it was a couple of decades ago when he was in Romans 5, I know, and uh, he will finish it, you know, but hopefully before the rapture, but we'll see uh, how he does it. Um, you are so well served here by expository ministry, by unpacking God's word every week, one verse at a time. And I'm just so, so blessed to hear of your testimony. Let me read for you the first five verses of Romans chapter five. We're going to be isolating our attention in verses three to five. But I think to get the full context, we need to read the first five verses. Romans is a favorite book of mine. It should be a favorite book of almost every Christian's. Uh, I spent, just for the record, Terry, I spent five years teaching through Romans. And uh, I find that anytime I get an opportunity to preach now, beyond that, I, I go back to my Romans series. And that's certainly the case this morning. Romans chapter 5, let me read beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult or rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. One of the uh, things I enjoy reading about or collecting are oxymorons. Now, if you know what an oxymoron is, you are probably a collector of them as well. An oxymoron are, are two words or two phrases that go together that aren't really supposed to go together, but they make sense when they come together. Like Great Depression, Jumbo Shrimp. You're just saying that because I'm short. I understand that. Clearly Confused. I like this one. Somewhat Addictive. Beautifully Painful or Painfully Beautiful. Deafening Silence. Pretty Ugly. Here's a new one. A Definite Maybe. Right? Only choice. Alone together. Virtual reality. Random order. This is a fun one. Original copy. Disgustingly delicious. I saw that on a menu. Awfully good. Small crowd. Dark light. Light darkness. I like this one. Open secret. Passive aggressive. Something that appears invisible. I really have to think that one through. A goodbye reception. Some people just got that. Um, Something that's growing smaller. My least favorite. Unpopular celebrity. (laughs) A noticeable silence. Um, How about this one? Death benefits. And maybe my, my favorite one is one my wife gave me. This oxymoron is called a non-working mother. 
Well, those are interesting. Two words that don't appear to go together, but they actually communicate something when they come together. One of the most notable, I think, oxymorons in the Christian experience ought to be one we understand, embrace, and understand how to articulate. And that's this. A joyful trial. A joyful trial, a joyful trouble, a joyful difficulty. That's exactly the emphasis of God's word and specifically in the text we're looking at this morning. We see that accent so clearly in this passage. Now a little context, the first four chapters of Romans deal with the doctrine of justification by faith. In other words, how a sinful man or woman can be made righteous before a holy God and have their sin dealt with by the cross of Jesus Christ and have his righteousness given to us by faith. The result of that is in chapter 5, verse 1. It's almost like a calculus prog- uh, uh, problem where it's, it's X plus Y minus this plus that over this and that. And at the end of that spiritual calculus is the word therefore in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's the summary of the first four chapters, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That climax is the first four chapters in one simple phrase in chapter 5 verse 1 christ and his death provide peace with god and the hope of heaven gives believer hope hope that the world doesn't understand hope that the world cannot grasp that is not however to say since we have the peace of god and peace with god that somehow when a person becomes a christian that the road of life becomes carpeted with padding and ease, comfort. I think it's true that when you, when you read the scriptures carefully, when you become a Christian, in some meaningful ways, life gets harder. Christians are not exempt from anguish. We're not exempt from grief or distrust, or discontentment, or heartache. All of these responses of the heart to loss and pain are real for us. But we have a way to deal with those that the unbeliever does not. Verse 3 calls these situations tribulations. The ESV and the NIV call them sufferings. The Greek word for tribulations is the word thlipsis. It's an interesting word. It means to be under pressure. Interestingly, it was used of squeezing olives in a press in order to extract the oil out of them. I've been to Israel and seen, uh, and in, even Italy, and seen these massive olive presses. They're quite interesting. You, you crush the olives and it makes it into a paste. And then you put the paste on these big pallets that are a couple of inches thick with uh, a material that is, uh, is uh, not porous that will squeeze and repel the oil and then you stack another one on top and another one on top it looks like pancakes and over time that weight just squeezes onto that paste and the olive oil squeezes out the side it was similar in the ancient near east and that was the word here for pressure for trial for tribulation we are under pressure i remember my had a friend in high school who uh, i used to go and hang out with and um, uh, pick him up where he worked he worked at a tire repair store and uh, this was the old days, so just work with me for a second. But the way he was showing me, I've seen these still uh, in existence even today. The way that they would find a leak in a tire is they had a big tub of water. 
and they would float the tire in the water and then they had a big press that had two by four across it. It would push the tire under the water and then from the side there was a big blunt edge uh, uh, piece of metal that they would crank and it would squeeze into the tire. The tire would become concave and then he would stop and watch for the bubbles. And because of that pressure, he could tell which part of the tire needed to be repaired. That's a really neat picture of the grace that is ours in trials. God is putting pressure on us to show us where the leaks are. And that's what he's going to be telling us, Paul is, here in this passage. There's a myth today that can be too easily believed by Christians, even proffered. And that myth is this. Becoming a Christian means that life is going to get easier. Troubles and difficulties diminish and go away. How has that worked out for anyone who's been a Christian for very long? It's just not true. There is a relationship, however, that we have with our sufferings, our tribulations, our persecutions, our trials, that an unbeliever cannot even fathom. And the three verses we're going to be diving into in our brief study this morning instruct us that a believer, I'm not being crazy, can actually face difficulty, suffering, and trials with joy and happiness. Paul informs us that this suffering has a positive result on our life. And knowing about these results can make all the difference between how we endure suffering and how an unbeliever does. It changes the way we face difficulties. So if you want an outline, uh, it's very simple. I'm going to give you three Christian distinctives in difficult circumstances. Three Christian distinctives in difficult circumstances. The first one is our, our, uh, our oxymoron, and it's the concept of joy. That's the first distinctive in, of a Christian in difficult circumstances, joy. We grow, actually, in a counterintuitive response to our difficulties, now, in order to understand this, we've got to get, so get a running start. And, and, and I need to give you just a slight little Greek lesson. It won't be a long one, okay? I promise. But look back up at chapter 5, verse 3. Uh, no, back, back to verse 2. He speaks of Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, that's sustaining, sanctifying, enjoying grace as a Christian. And then the New American Standard says, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. That word exult, your translation may say rejoice, is kalkaomai. We talked about this a little bit yesterday in our ministry. It means you're overwhelming with happiness. It's me when my beloved Tennessee Vols win a game, which is not very often, but we, we get to do that every now and then. I, I, I'm a college football fan. I'd love to do it. My wife makes fun of me when I get so excited. Or I could use the illustration of uh, my beloved uh, Kansas City Chiefs, right, Eric? But we had trouble a few weeks ago. And uh, I expected that, that, that day that there wasn't a lot of overjoy expressions. Uh, it means you erupt. You're exci- this is when I remember my son, first year of, of uh, fast pitch baseball, he hit a triple. And I was jumping up and down excited. That's Kalkaomai. He says, we do that, we overjoyed, we are overjoyed with the hope of the glory of God. That's heaven, that's being with him, that's experiencing him as he is. And what believer doesn't look to heaven with some sense of anticipation and joy? 
Here's the challenge. And you almost have to read the next verse twice to realize what Paul is saying. Not only do we do we over spill with joy at the hope of heaven, not only that, but look at what he says. We also, same word, rejoice in our tribulations. Do you see that? Does that say that in your Bible? It says that in mine. Now, my first encounter is, well, maybe I should, but I usually don't. We had a, when I was preaching this a few years ago in uh, going through Romans, Terry, do you ever find that, interestingly, whatever you're preaching, God tends to mess with your life, with whatever you're preaching? And so I'm looking at the next passage almost going, oh no, what's going to happen now? This is God, God is going to use the whole world to teach me a lesson. And I'm sorry that you have to be a part of that. But, but we were, I was going through this, this passage and that week we got a, um, uh, I don't want to go into all the details, but I got a, a real neat letter um, from on the outside of the envelope that said Internal Revenue Service. And it seems that about four years before we had made a significant mistake um, that involved multiple thousand dollars needing to be paid to the government. And I'm studying this passage that tells me I am supposed to rejoice in my tribulation. And I remember actually justifying and saying, well, of course tribulation is, but this is satanic. So <laughs> I can't rejoice. There's got to be a way I can get around finding joy in this. No, we also rejoice in our tribulations just like we rejoice in the hope in hope of the glory of god he builds a bridge between those two concepts of rejoicing how in the world can we exult in sufferings tribulations and trials how can we do that this is a cousin to what james said remember james chapter one consider it all Joy, my brethren, not if, but when you encounter various trials. This is not one, uh, uh, one place that, that the Holy Spirit tells us this. Consider it all joy, same idea, when you encounter various trials. Paul says, we rejoice in our trials, in our sufferings. Incredibly, Paul says our response to having peace with God through Christ should elicit the same response as our suffering and our tribulations. Make no mistake, when a Christian is able to do this, and we're going to get to how we do it in a moment, a right response to troubles, sufferings, persecutions will get the attention of the world around you, the family around you who doesn't know Christ. A settled joy in difficulty and suffering is a signature of the Christian's experience in this earth, on this earth. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, and if you're godly, and I know you to be, and if you're a good student, and that's obvious, you should be saying at this point, how does that work? Why does that ha- How can you say we rejoice in our troubles, in our sufferings? Well, now we come to our second response. Not only joy, but this is the key that unlocks the whole passage. Awareness. Awareness. We rejoice, we exult in our 
sufferings and our tribulations. And I don't know if you mark things in your Bible, if you underline things, if you highlight things, if you circle things, but here's the word to mark. Knowing. Knowing. Adontes. It's a perfect active participle of oida. It means to be in the state of knowing about something. James refers to the same thing. He says, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So what do we know? <laughs> what do we know as believers that makes us so different in our response to tribulation and sufferings? Now, before we get into Paul's specific reasons in this text, I want to take a theological field trip with you just for a moment. And if there's ever been a year that this has been something that I've worked on in my own heart, it has been this last year. This, this has been a bizarre year for all of us especially those of us who, who uh, uh, are, are leaders in the church. I mean, I don't know what happened here in Texas, but we went three months, lockdown, live stream only. I mean, I was staring at a camera and preaching and hoping somebody was watching. Then we came back into three services. Now we're into two services. We just added Sunday school two weeks ago. So with the kids, just joyful. To see their little smiles is is phenomenal. So we're turning up the dimmer switch, I think, toward normal. But this last year has been bizarre. I, there was probably three of our church members who went to be with Jesus that I could never visit in the hospital. Not COVID related, but I, I, I couldn't pastor. I couldn't go. I remember one, one uh, precious lady hold, holding up the phone and FaceTiming. I'm trying to do a pastoral visit with, with a phone. It, it, it just seems so cruel. It seems so harsh and so hard. Um, and yet there were blessings that we didn't anticipate. I got to sit home like night after night with my wife. And I like my wife a lot. With my family. But it was a tough year for all of us. I found myself gravitating back to this passage. Not, not weekly, not daily, sometimes hourly. I told you we're going to take a quick field trip. Paul says that we can, we can uh, rejoice in our sufferings knowing, knowing. So stop right there for a minute. There are three questions that I use in every counseling situation I ever have. Now, I know I'm a little intimidated talking about counseling in this church because you have the creme de la creme in this church. But this is how I counsel my own heart. This is how I approach others. Let's stop, whatever you're at, let's stop and ask three quick questions, three simple questions. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? So we start, what do you feel? I feel, whatever the trial is, I feel angry. I feel upset. I feel insecure. I feel fearful. I, I, I feel hopeless. I, um, you, you can fill that in. And that's the emotional response to trials that I think all of us have. That's what I feel. Then you say, well, what do you think? How, how's that causing you to think? Typically, now if you can think of this kind of in a, in a line, linear, with polarity, what do I feel typically influences how I think? Uh, if I'm afraid, I'm going to think in a certain way. If I'm fearful, I'm gonna, uh, if I'm uh, uh, anxious, I'm going to think in another way. If, I, if um, I'm dreading, I'm going to think in another way. Feelings can cause massive impacts on how you think. So three questions. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? And I think all of my self-counseling, all of my pastoral counseling, 
is trying to get to what do I know. That's what Paul says, knowing we know something. Now, here's the polarity. Usually it's what do I feel, which causes me to think a certain way, which is not always good, which causes me to be suspicious of or doubt or ignore what I believe and what I know. So all of my own self-counseling is what do I believe? What do I know to be true? That should influence how I think, why I think how I think. And then, and I know what you think, then it changes how I feel. Not always, not always, but it helps me control how I feel and not be a victim of how I feel and not be a slave to how I feel. So I think Paul has something like that paradigm in his mind. We exult, we rejoice in our tribulations knowing. He doesn't say feeling. He says knowing. Knowing. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? Just learn to ask that. My precious wife, my sweet wife Kim, she she actually uses my sermons against me sometimes. For me. I guess it's really for me. Um, so just, uh, in the last couple of weeks, we were on our way somewhere. There was terrible snowing. We were 32 below zero a week and a half ago in, in Kansas city. And, uh, that's cold. Uh, and let me tell you, wind chill matters a lot. <laughs> we're going somewhere and we're, it's snow, it's slippery. It's, it's worse than snow. It was ice and, and it was, it was, it was a mess. And so we're going to be late. And so I'm, uh, I'm obviously upset i'm frustrated i'm complaining i'm grumbling in a sanctified way of course but just saying things and so uh i hear this little voice what do you feel oh honey come on i said okay we know she says what do you think and i said she says i want you to tell me right now what you know and i said okay i get it she says no i want you to tell me what you know and it was so healthy I know that God is in charge. I know that God is sovereign. I know he causes snow. I know that I should have left early. I know that, um, and you go on the, what do I know? What do I believe? So what do you have to know to have joy in trials? Paul tells us exactly what we need to know. Knowing, and then he answers that. First of all, look, that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance is not just the Mars rover. It's actually a biblical virtue. It's a simple fact that tribulations and sufferings themselves bring the ability to endure tribulations and sufferings even more. Paul says, we know, what's the first thing we know? That tribulation brings about perseverance. Now, this is a little scary. The word for perseverance is hupomone, from, from to remain under, to live under. God's grace gives us the ability to remain in the trial and benefit from it. You all know the verse, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Before I finish that, you do, you're well taught. I'm sure you understand the word for temptation there. Exact same Greek word as the word trial. Exact same. No trial or temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. You and I never experienced anything that God... God never elbows the angels and say, Wow, this is new. I've never seen this one before. Never. And God is faithful. 
who will not allow you to be trialed or tempted or tested beyond what you are able, but with that trial or temptation will provide the way of escape. And your instant thought is to get out of this. No, no, no. (laughs) That you will be able to monate, to endure it, minnow, to stay in it. Why? Remember that pressure that's on the tire? When God gives us difficulty and suffering is to show us areas that he is making us more like Jesus in. He's sanding parts of our existence off and making it reflect his image. Puritan John Flavel writes, (laughs) this is so good, affliction is a pill which, being wrapped up in patience and quiet submission, may be quite easily swallowed. He goes on, to be free from affliction for a Christian would be no benefit to us as believers. Think about that. To be free from affliction, trials, would be no benefit to believers who receive so many benefits by it. If afflictions be the way through which you must come to God, then never be discouraged at affliction, troubles, or, or, or difficulties. Troubles and afflictions are of excellent use, end quote. Do you believe, can I ask you, do you believe that God is ever and always doing something for you and in you in your difficulties? Will you believe that? That God is, Psalm 119, verse 68, God is good and God does good. Paul is saying that we should not be in such a hurry, always, not be in such a hurry to get out of what God has put us into. I think one of the greatest misunderstandings is the error of immediately thinking that all bad things are bad things. Are all bad things really bad things? Do you remember a couple decades ago when Terry did Romans 8, 28? All things work together for... For what? For what? For good? Why do we forget that? It's important to remember that... Amen. I can close in prayer right now. This is, this is awesome. Can he come home with me? That would be great. Perseverance brings about... Tribulation brings about perseverance. It's like a muscle and God uses difficulties to make us ready for other and greater difficulties because it's through those difficulties that he's making us conform into the image of his son. You know what else it does? It makes us realize that this world is not our home. We take our talents out of this world and reach for glory, which is what he just said is another expression of our hope, our kalkaomai. Secondly, perseverance that we get from the tribulation, these are all in a chain. Perseverance produces character. The word for character is a, is a quality that comes about by going through a test. Perseverance produces that in us. The best way to understand this is the maturity that is generated in someone who has endured through a test. Can I tell you just briefly about my friend Roberta? Let me tell you, first of all, Roberta is enjoying the glories of heaven right now and her faith is sight and she is... She has never been more whole and healthier and happier than she is right now. Roberta developed uh, advanced 
uh, a liver cancer and really only gave her about five weeks uh, left on this earth when they found the diagnosis. Well, my wife and I went over to talk to her over the course, this was a few years ago before COVID, over the course of of a few weeks and multiple times we would go and sit with her in a chair and then then the last week she was laying down she couldn't move so we would get down on our knees and and look at her eye to eye and as she laid in her bed and and was preparing for glory but i saw something happen she was a sweet lady and always a godly gal but there was a maturity that was palatable and measurable in her the last three weeks of her life that was overwhelming. This is her perseverance in this trial was changing her. I'll never forget. I said this was probably three days before she lost consciousness. She knew she was dying, and so I, I just said, Roberta, are, are you you're going to be with Jesus soon? Are, are you afraid? And she reached over and she she didn't grab me by the collar, but she grabbed me by the shirt. I'll never, and she says, No, I'm not afraid. Yes, and, and the preacher suddenly became the, became the congregation at that moment. She says, why would I be afraid to go be with Jesus? Yeah, so convicted. Her perseverance was changing her character. Remember James 1, God uses these for our good. Consider all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect mature and complete, lacking in nada, in nothing. Are you aware that God is doing things in your trials on purpose? And can I just be really personal with you for a second? I've learned something about our God. These trials are always tests, right? And God is an excellent school teacher, And when you and I fail a test, you know what he's faithful to do? Make us take it again. So I've kind of learned, I really want to do this the right way the first time. Because usually the second test, he gets the volume a little bit higher on those things. Trials are intended by God to change us for the better. Not to punish us. Not to mess with us. But to change us. We know that, Paul says, knowing. There's a third thing we know, and it's that that character produces hope. Remember, these are in a daisy chain. Um, tribulation is perseverance. Perseverance is character. Character is hope. What do we need most in a trial? If you boil it down, we need hope. The definition of a trial is we lose hope because of our circumstances. And when we approach this correctly, knowing what we're supposed to know, then it changes our hope. Hope is rooted, again, in verse 2, in the hope of glory, which is the cessation of the troubles on this earth. But this is different. Trials and troubles pry our grip off of this world to make us look for that hope and bring that hope back with us into our experience. And hope, look at what he says, does not disappoint you know i've done enough um, discipleship and counseling and i've been counseled and discipled enough to know that i can help people with biblical truth i've been helped by biblical truth but ultimately every person you ever get close to is going to disappoint you at some level except jesus christ which is why we draw near to him his hope never ever disappoints so look at the circle tribulation brings us 
endurance or perseverance. Perseverance changes our character. Character gives us hope. Hope is what we need back to the circle in our tribulation. It is a perfect, sufficient circle. And Paul says, knowing, knowing, what do I feel, what do I think, what do I know? You have to know this. The believer's advantage of awareness is knowing that God is doing something in us and for us and to us, and it's good for us. That confidence is a game changer. It is an absolute game changer. So we're growing in our understanding of our trials. We, we have these distinctives of a Christian in difficult circumstances. We have joy. We have awareness what we know. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? Third, number three, is comfort. That's what we want and need most in our trials is comfort. He gives these three triads, you know, blank produces blank produces blank. And then verse 5, he says in the middle, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts, and this is going back to hope not disappointing. How are we not disappointed? Because we go to the love of God, which has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is incredible to me. You know, if you, I just finished the book of Mark a few months ago. And um, it was so sweet to go through Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and marching to the cross, knowing that his, his love for us as sinners was demonstrated in such an incredible way. But remember when Jesus goes into his greatest trial? I think his, was it William Lane says, Jesus' soul was crucified in the Garden before his body was on Calvary. That's where, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me started? How do we know that? Because he prays three times with no answer. He was forsaken. Well, he prays, and, and finally in the end, after, after there is, the cup is not taken from him, God sends an angel to minister to him. That's a sweet, endearing moment. But can I show you how much God demonstrates his love for you? He doesn't send an angel. He sends himself. He gave us the Holy Spirit. When we suffer, he comes himself. He introduces the love of God. And I think you're, you, you would be welcome to get the download of the... the we did verses 6 to us. 11, which talks about the love of God with the men yesterday. You're welcome to listen to that. The love of God is interesting because God's love is different than our love. He loves us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We love because we like people. This all comes back to trusting that God is in charge and that he loves us. I'm about to start, in a, when I get back, Ephesians 1.4, which is on divine sovereign grace and election and predestination. I've been studying this for a few weeks in preparation for it. And and I'm convinced of this. If you ever separate God's sovereignty from his love or his love from his sovereignty, you are going to have theological anemia and get in trouble pretty quick. His sovereignty and his love have to be patterned. Or he's a mean sovereign or he's a loving deity who has no control. They have to come together. One of my favorite Puritans, Horatius Bonner, said this. Think about this. I'll read it a couple times. This is one of those 
those game-changing paragraphs. And this is what I've learned about reading. Uh, I, I love to read. And that's that books don't change your life. Paragraphs do. Unfortunately, you've got to find the whole book to find the paragraph that's going to change your life. And it's not the same paragraph for everybody or everybody would write paragraphs rather than books. So this was the paragraph in Bonner's treatise that really rocked my world. He said this, man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. Think about that. Man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. God's sovereignty, his arranging trials in our lives, his dealing with us in ways that shape us, can threaten us and undo us unless we attach that to his goodness and his character. If we become suspicious of his heart, his sovereignty will be no no consolation to us at all. He has this. We're not always comfortable with the idea of being holy at the disposal of God. Are you comfortable with the idea that God is, is sovereign? You won't be unless you believe he's good. Paul goes straight to the last question in our passage of our hearts. Where can we find comfort? Is Am I beyond the reach of God in my pain, in my suffering, in my difficulty. And we're given a peek above the clouds to understand what God is doing in our sufferings. So gracious. He's pouring out the gift of His presence, His Holy Spirit, His personal presence to us. And I love this, within our hearts. You know, your heart is really your mission control central of of who you are, how you think, how you feel, what do I feel, what do I think, what do I know. That's all within our hearts. It gives us an opportunity to stop and say, do I take advantage of that word knowing? Do I understand the gift of perspective that the believer in a difficult time, and we're all at one degree or another coming out of last year and going into this year, experiencing different levels of trials that tend to kind of come in waves and ebb and flow. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? We have to take advantage of our access that God has told us what he's doing. Think about this. Job uh, experiences, Satan and God have this conversation and he goes through this horrific experience. Job chapter 1 and 2, right? Abraham uh, Genesis 22, verse 1, is going to offer Isaac. We, Abraham didn't know what the narrator, what Moses tells us. God tested Abraham. So Job goes into his trial not knowing what's happening above the clouds. Abraham goes into his trial not knowing what's happening above the clouds. Every trial you and I encounter, we know exactly what's happening above the clouds. And we know who's doing it and we can trust him. For a believer, heaven is that time and place where we will enjoy the absence of evil and suffering, the ultimate presence of unmitigated, unhindered joy. But that stretching reality should give us confidence and the hope of that that parallels our hope and our joy and our trials. Remember, back to where we started. 
We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only do we hope there, not only that, we also rejoice and have joy in our tribulations. Randy Alcorn says in his excellent book on heaven, for Christians, and he's quoting Jonathan Edwards, by the way, who said this in a different way. For Christians, this present life is the closest they will ever come to hell. For unbelievers, this life is the closest they will ever come to heaven. And then Morris Roberts writes, I love this. The degree of a Christian's peace of mind depends upon his spiritual ability to interpose the thought of God between himself and his anxiety. Isn't that good? The thought of God has to be interposed between ourselves and our anxiety. And that changes the filter of understanding because Paul said we know something. James said the same thing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces maturity and endurance. I think if a believer can keep his or her mind on God in the midst of our difficulties, our trials, whether big or little, temporary or lifelong, that'll be enough until heaven. That will be enough until we see the Lord. So, let's review. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? When you're reading your Bible day in and day out, you know what you're doing? You're feeding that part of your soul that has a reservoir for what you know. What do I feel? I feel terrible, anxious, fearful, you name it. What do I think? I'm starting to think bad thoughts because my feelings are influencing me. What do I believe? What do I know? That's why, thank God you're in the church you're in. Thank God that you're discipled by the people that you are who are telling you and informing you of what you need to know that God intends for you to know. It's no secret what he's doing. It's no secret that he's doing. And he wants us to know that so we'll trust him, believe his character, what Bonner said, and not be suspicious of what he's like. Theology matters, folks. And every Sunday you come, you're hearing another piece that God is putting in this macro puzzle in your mind of his theology. And it just fits perfectly to get you ready. We talk often about trusting God. Jerry Bridges is right. It's easier to obey God than to trust God. (laughs) Because trusting God means that we come to that word knowing. Knowing. Let me encourage you. You're in a well-taught place with great people around you. Spend your spiritual energies knowing who God is, what He's like, what He's doing, what He intends for you to do and be faithful To be children who are pleasing to Him. I thank God for this church and the ministry and the reputation you have. May you excel still more. Let me pray. So grateful, Father, that unlike Abraham, who did not know you were testing him, unlike Job, that did not know that you had a plan to demonstrate your glory through his suffering, you've let us know what we need to believe and accept and trust about you and about our trials and about our sanctification 
that can change our perspective. Give us that awareness. Forgive us when we're suspicious of your character. Change our thinking about you and our circumstances. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your precious word that informs what we know and what we believe. Make us live in that reality. For your glory and for our good, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.